I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. I'm R.L. Miller with Climate Hawks Vote, um, and I am getting reports that the vote has been against us, which is not at all surprising because Tom Perez was stacking the deck against us from the beginning. Um, the vote is in, I'm not quite sure what it is, but it looks like it's going to be under 200 for them and over 100 for us, but I'm not sure how the proxies are going to be counted. Um, without proxies, it was 141 to 118, which actually is closer than I thought. Um, this has been a failure of leadership from the top down. The DNC has operated as a black box, and it's been very frustrating. I am committed to reforming the DNC, not to burning it down. Um, and so I will be announced, I have announced my candidacy for um, DNC in California. with R.L. Miller, who is newly elected to the DNC. R.L. is an uh, environmental activist. She works with a group called Climate Hawks, and she's also head of the Environmental Caucus for the California Democratic Party. So we're going to talk a little bit about her plans for the DNC and pushing towards more uh, climate change debates and change in the platform policy that's more supportive of environmental causes. Welcome, R.L. Thank you so much for inviting me. Also, I wanted to ask you, is it true that Jerry Brown has referred to you as a political terrorist? Absolutely. <laughs> you get credit for that. What happened? How'd that happen? He had an extension of that cap and trade system in California. He had a bill in 2017 that I found out was literally written by the oil lobbyists. Yeah. By Chef. And... It was, it, of course, we all want to extend cap and trade, kind of, sort of, maybe. Um, there were plans going, there were bills to modify cap and trade to make it a better system. He wouldn't do those. Instead, he wanted what the oil companies told him to do. I found out about it. I wrote a petition um, at Climate Hawks Boat that said, Jerry Brown, stop being Chevron's stenographer. <laughs> um, I gathered up all, I helped to round up all of the environmental justice organizations in opposition to the bill. Okay. It passed anyways, and at the signing ceremony, he made a point of singling out um, those who think it's bad that I negotiate with oil companies while those are just political terrorists. <sighs> and it was so obviously the me that he was talking about. Yeah. But is that a badge of honor? Um, it is a badge of honor. Absolutely. Yeah, he's gone and I'm still here. Exactly. <laughs> You're on the ascendant on top of it. No, it is It is a badge of honor because this is just quid pro quo. I mean, come on, Jerry. And, and I'm going to be in the same position. Tom Perez is leaving the DNC and I'll be on it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Tom Perez needs to go. In fact, let's talk about that. You were in an interview on Friday with somebody from Heated, which is an environmental publication. And you were um, sort of trending on Twitter there for a minute for saying that one of your first points of order was to tell Tom Perez to his face to fuck off, which is <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah. 
So let's talk about that. We first met at the DNC summer session. You were there with a group of activists uh, trying to get some climate change resolutions passed. Um, one of them was to have a presidential climate change debate. We started with, what, three or four resolutions. One made it to the DNC floor and then lost in the floor vote. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about that process. I know that um, you had worked, you had gotten some signatures to get the ball rolling, made it there. So walk us through how that went down. Sure. And it, it started off with the basic online signature gathering that we all click, you know, the clicktivism stuff that we all do. We gathered um, 250,000 signatures, which is quite a lot, delivered them to the DNC. Um, I am more familiar with inside Democratic Party politics than others in the climate sphere might be. And so mm -hmm. I came up with the idea of asking, of using resolutions to speak the language of Democrats. Democrats speak in the language of resolutions. So I drafted a model resolution that Demo and asked Democrats across the country to take that to their Democratic clubs. And my resolution calling on Democrats to ask for their DNC members to host a climate debate um, got passed by Democrats in Florida, in Tennessee, the Utah State Democratic Party, <laughs> Young Democrats of America, um, you know, Arizona, Colorado, Illinois, all across the country. And they still wouldn't do a climate debate. Two days before the, DN the summer event in San Francisco, the executive director of the DNC called me to tell me that there was no path forward. <sighs> And I went, I'm pressing for a vote. Do you not believe in votes? They don't, <laughs> apparently. Institution. <laughs> um, and I was, at that point, by the time I marched into San Francisco, I was just ready to explode. And I did everything I could, um, you know, rallied with the activists um, and Sunrise on the outside. Um, sat in the hotel in the Hilton lobby with the Democrats who were on the good side. On the inside, um, ultimately, there was a floor vote on Saturday, and it failed with about 38% of the DNC body voting yes for climate debate and 62% voting no and just saying that they supported the chair. I walked out of that so angry so furious that I determined that I would run for DNC myself, which is very hard to do. Yeah. Um, California elects um, 20 DNC members. And most of the time, the long-term incumbents just get voted in again, over and over and over again. Um, there was a woman talking about the most exciting thing that she had done as a DNC member when Al Gore was running for president. And apparently she hadn't really done anything since then. That's crazy, wow. <laughs> right, so I ran um, as an activist telling people that I was running to make change. And truthfully, I spent a great deal of time online um, telling Tom Perez to fuck off for refusing to hold a DNC debate. Now I hope to be able to tell it to him in 
to his face. And that's the real reason I ran. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Well, you know, I remember being in the resolutions uh, committee hearing before it went to the floor. And there were multiple resolutions that were trying to get passed through. But I think it's important for folks to realize the, these meetings are supposed to be open to the public. Well, they had shut the room and locked it and, and they weren't letting people in, right? Even though there was plenty of space in there, you probably could have put 300 more bodies in that room. They didn't want the Sunrise Movement in that room. They finally burst in through the door, through the back of the room and came in and started singing and chanting and they shut the meeting down, which was great. But it was very disturbing for me to watch that from the inside because uh, Applebaum, Simone Sanders, like all, minus, I would say, Jim Zogby is the exception to the rule and Christine Pelosi, a lot of the other folks in that room clearly didn't want to hear about it. And I don't understand why this is controversial because part of the Democratic Party platform is to fight for climate change. So what gives? I honestly, to this day, I ended up with three theories. Mm -hmm. um, the first theory was just plain that Perez saw this as a question of leadership unrelated to the substance. Um, he felt that Democrats should not challenge him. Um, I have heard from many DNC members that he has a very autocratic style. Yes. So for example, all of these rules, not just the rule that there would be no climate debate, but all of the debate rules about how you had to get X percent and Y polls and Z states or what have you, all of those were never voted on by the DNC body as a whole. They were literally made up in Tom Perez's head. Yeah. So, um, so one theory was simply that he saw it as a challenge to his authority and he got stubborn. Um, and, right. Another theory is that they were genuinely worried about losing Pennsylvania. And by that, I mean that if Democrats would get up on the stage and talk about banning fracking, um, to use a really clear cut, obvious example, we would lose Pennsylvania. That if Democrats started getting up um, on stage and talking about the need to phase out or abolish ICE cars, that is to say gasoline powered cars, we would lose Michigan. And so there was a lot of fear that this might have some impact on electoral politics. The last thing is, as you just pointed out, Simone Sanders was vehemently arguing against the climate debate. There were a number of forums hosted, Planned Parenthood hosted a forum where 20 candidates showed up. Uh, there was a forum specifically about black women. Um, a number of candidates showed up. Uh, there is a forum that Latino Victory Fund is hosting in the, in the coming weeks and months, I believe, uh, where a number of candidates are slated to show up with the slam of Puerto Rico. Um, so I, I just, I, I, we are fundamentally, this, this resolution right now would fundamentally change the game in terms of uh, what has previously been communicated to not only campaigns, but networks, but other, as I like to call them, factions of the Democratic Party. And I fundamentally believe that climate change is an existential threat, um, just as much of a threat and not more of a threat than Donald Trump. Uh, but I do think we have to think about the other folks that, that communicated they wanted a debate, that were told a debate is two or more people, and so you may not have a debate, but you can't in fact have a forum. And we support forums, but I just, I think this is dangerous territory in the middle of 
a democratic primary process. And if we do, I mean, I absolutely support um, Christine's point about perhaps we should chop up our platform and our debate should be theme focused. But frankly, that is a conversation we should have had last summer. That's not a feasible conversation to have this summer as we are nearly three, four, th one third of the way through a democratic primary process. Allegedly on her own, not, not in her role as a spokesperson for Joe Biden. Right. He is, however, a spokesperson for Joe Biden. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so there was a theory going around that all of this was simply to protect um, Biden in particular. So fast forward, you know, and I'll have a little bit more to say if we have time on how Biden seems to now suddenly be realizing that he has a youth problem. <laughs> like he was never warned. Exactly. No, exactly. <laughs> but, yeah. But anyways, um, you know, I can't tell you exactly what was in his head. Um, I can tell you that I was really angry and it needs change. And the DNC body as a whole needs change. Um, one of the very first people to speak against it, against the resolution for a climate debate, was somebody who is a co Maria Cardona. Yeah. She's a fossil fuel lobbyist. Uh, right. Let's talk about that for a second. She's not the only lobbyist in the DNC membership. In fact, I'd say a good large chunk of the DNC membership are lobbyists. So she works for Dewey Square Group. She's represented fossil fuel companies. And you're right. She was the first one to get up and speak. And basically, she made the argument that we couldn't do a climate change debate because if we did, that would forego having to have specific debates on other things like racial justice, criminal justice reform. She went down the list and it was all hogwash. And um, obviously there's a lot of fossil fuel money coming into the DNC. So how, how do we circle that square, RL? Because it seems to me that that is the absolute opposite of what they're claiming they want to do with their platform. Oh, it, it's worse than that. The DNC is an extremely secretive body. And when they are not transparent, um, then if all you see is a black box, you begin to invent things that might be inside that black box. And so you end up with some paranoia, you end up with some conspiracy theories, you end up with some silliness. But do you know who the DNC members from Maryland and Florida are? Not specifically. Are they related to uh, fossil fuel? Because you're right, no, they're very secretive. In fact, there were a couple of people, because I actually went through that roster, and um, I specifically focused on the 75 appointed at-large delegates that Tom Perez appoints, because he's using those as proxy votes. Whenever he wants to shut something down, he pulls out these at-large delegates and say, they're voting with me, and that's that, right? I've seen him do it. So I was very curious about who some of these folks were, and some of them I could absolutely not find any information on whatsoever. Right. Um, and in some states, they don't publicize the names of their DNC members. Right. So, no, and this is a good point. I'm not going to name names because I want to protect my source, but I was actually given the entire roster from somebody inside the DNC. I could not find this information publicly whatsoever, and I had right. to, like, beg for it from somebody I know that's a DNC member who finally right. was like, yes, here, take it. You didn't get it from me kind of a thing. Why and, is that? And you think that's bad? They do not give out the email address. No, they of, do. 
of DNC members to other DNC members. Wow, not even to each other? Not even to each other. This is crazy to me. I mean, right. this is supposed to be the, the governing body of the, of the party. I, right. I don't understand why they think that this is um, acceptable. Right. And so one of the things I'm going to be pushing for on the DNC, completely aside from fossil fuel financing and climate policy and all the stuff that I'm elected to, is some basic transparency. Yeah. Let's have a website where you can see every single, the name and face of every single person who's been elected to the DNC. Yeah. They can have an email address, you know, rlm at dnc.org. Um, where people can actually email the DNC reps. Yeah. And they can be just a little bit more open about who they are. This is a democratic institution. Right. This is the democratic institution. And the fact that they are so secretive is really troubling. It is troubling, RL, because part and parcel to that is you have, they have a problem. The Democratic Party has a problem with those voter trust at this point, right? They've alienated a good 50% of their base. And they're engaging in these sort of tactics doesn't rebuild the trust that needs to be rebuilt. So right. they need to have that conversation. And I think Tom Perez is certainly part of the problem. Um, also, I wanted to ask you, you and Christine Pelosi were able to pass another resolution that stopped the DNC from taking fossil fuel money. But Tom Perez overturned that rule, what, two months later? Yeah. What excuse did he use for that? Because that's, a, those are, that's really bad optics. It was horrible. Um, I have nothing good to say. Apparently what happened was that some of the coal mine workers um, got it rubbed in their faces by their bosses that the Democrats don't want your money and the Democrats don't like you. And that was just silly. The way we've always phrased the, the pledge has made it clear that it only applies to the upper echelon of management mm -hmm. in fossil fuel business. And so if Eddie Exxon, the gas station guy or the line worker was your frat buddy and he wants to give you $25, we're totally cool with that. Yeah. And in fact, Eddie Exxon should give you money um, because Eddie is actually being screwed over by his bosses. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> but that, you know, Perez didn't listen to us. He never tried to talk to Christine. Um, he just, came up with a solution and it was the wrong solution to overturn um, our resolution. Yeah, really foolish. I'm also, and you're right about the workers, right? So it's one thing to say, I'm not gonna engage in quid pro quo with a corporation. And another one to say, I'm gonna take the Walmart worker money because this guy that's making minimum wage at Walmart supports you know, increasing workers' rights, doing something about income inequality, doing something in, about environmental protections. Those are two separate things. You're right. So for him to conflate them is absolutely ridiculous, in my opinion. Um, I wanted to ask you um, specifically, let's go back and, and talk about Simone Sanders again, because I think you were onto something there, and I don't disagree with you in regards to Joe Biden. It seemed to me that they were, even at that point, using kid gloves with Joe, right? He did not come, you know, we had uh, right before the DNC summer session, we had the KDEM uh, presidential forum and he didn't come. He didn't speak to any of the delegates. 
and which was noticeable as a, as a press member. I noticed that he was absent, and I thought, well, that's odd. This guy is claiming to be a front runner, right? And he's not even here to address the delegates. Um, and Simone seemed to come across to me, at least, as if she didn't want him to, to be able to debate on the merits of climate change. It seemed like she was absolutely protecting him. So it sounds like you agree with that. Um, what are your thoughts in that area? You know, Joe Biden was not my first choice. In fact, he was in the handful of candidates that was my dead last, I will not vote for this person if there is any other choice on the ballot. I'm with you. Um, but he is our Democrat, our nominee. We're going to have to live with him. We're going to have to vote for him. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say we're going to have to vote for him, but honestly, we can't let Trump stay in office for Do another- Do you think it's possible, though, that, I mean, the, I mean, I know it's crazy to say this, maybe, but the primary is not over. I mean, there's still a choice to be made, perhaps. I don't know. I mean, Tom Perez has been authoritarian in the past about other things. It wouldn't surprise me if he turned around and decided Biden wasn't suitable to be the nominee. I don't know. Um, I think things would have to be a lot worse for Biden okay. than they are now. Okay. Um, what we're seeing now is a generalized low-level discomfort with him, but it's not really widespread. Um, okay. It's really among the left folk, the yeah. <laughs> who, who he wasn't our first choice. Um, but it would have to get to the point where the majority of Democrats really lost confidence in him. And I'm not seeing that happen. I okay. instead think that what's going to happen is he's going to hopefully pick a good vice president. That would be helpful. Yes. And hopefully that can get people better. Right. Um, I am definitely seeing some signs that he's doing more outreach. In fact, it's sort of odd because normally in a contested primary, the Democrats all run to the left. And then once the primary is over, they run to the center. That's, yeah, the opposite Here, is Biden's happening. Yeah. He's doing the opposite. He's running to the, he ran to the center in the primary. Yeah, he did. And now that he won, he's now doing outreach to the left. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't really have a choice though, RL, because he's, he, I think he's smart enough to realize he's already lost the Bernie Sanders voters. They, they are outright rejecting him. So if he doesn't give well, them something, especially yeah. after campaigning against Medicare for all, et cetera, those voters aren't going to turn out for Biden. They will vote Green Party or they won't vote at all. They'll only vote down ballot. I think that's a that's a very real scenario that they need to be looking at. It, it is certainly he has certainly lost some of the Bernie voters and the Tulsi Gabbard voters and the Marianne Williamson voters. Um, I think he's, it's not quite as bitter feeling as be at the top, where you really got the sense that Bernie loathed Hillary. Um, here, Bernie seems to, to like Joe. Yeah. And so Bernie himself is going to do a little bit more okay. in the way of outreach. I think that's fair. Yeah. And so I think, and also, we have a very different situation now where bitterness and anger towards Clinton and towards Trump. And so you had very large, relatively speaking, showings by the Green Party and on the right and the Libertarian Party and on the left. Libertarian Party picked up a lot of anybody but Trump Republicans. Yeah. And 
party picked up a lot of anybody but Hillary Dems. So this time around, I'm just not seeing it yet. Now, granted, it's still early. Yeah. Um, there is a pretty strong never Trump movement because here's the thing. We now know what Trump is. We could possibly pretend to ourselves in 2016, maybe he won't be that bad. Maybe he'll That's true. reach out and yeah. rise to the occasion and truly become president for all of the American masses. And we saw what happened. He said, fuck you to the to most of America other than his base. He's turned out to be an absolute disaster as a president. And so we now know just how bad it can get. And I, for one, fear that if he is reelected, um, he will find some way to stay in office forever. He will gerrymander the hell out of everything or he will pick his successors and we will be looking at some sort of Trump dynasty that never goes away. Mm. The assault yeah. on our planet continues. And it wouldn't surprise me. Um, my concern though, to be uh, to be frank, my concern is, is I don't think Biden's the guy that can beat Trump. I think, I think Trump is worse on the margins, absolutely. But Biden doesn't have a clear record in the way that a lot of the, I, this is why he was at the very last position for me as well. I don't think, his record is very deadly in a lot of the same areas that Trump's, Trump is. And there's, there, is a, there is a contention of Democrats that aren't convinced that this lesser evil thing is all that much more less. I mean, I guess it remains to be seen. We've got months ahead of us, but that's the battle that the Biden campaign is facing. They must convince those voters. And I think it's going to take him saying, he needs to stop saying he doesn't support Medicare for all, for one. That is a, um, a litmus test, uh, so to speak, for a lot of progressives. You know, if, if he got behind, even if he had, like, I know this isn't going to happen, but if he had Biden uh, nominated Bernie as the VP and he turned around and said, I support Medicare for all, that's how he could win, right? But I don't see him doing that stuff. So I don't know. I guess we'll see. Um, you, I wanted to ask you about the, the Woolsey fire, um, because I know when we first spoke, you had been, you lived through that, and I believe the fire came up really close to your house. And in Southern California, it's quite obvious to us that our fire season is much more deadly than it's ever been. It's longer in length. And this is absolutely due to climate change. And this is just one of the many things that we're going to start facing um, that are going to be very harmful to, to us. And I think more people are realizing that. I mean, famines, droughts, all of these things. So what kind of a uh, factor does that experience play in your activism? So please, first off, please forgive me if I get a little bit emotional during this part. Okay. I talk about it it's been a year and a half and i still do get a little bit choked up this was a traumatic experience um and our wildfire season now it starts in for anybody who's listening to this who doesn't know southern california um we used to have a pretty well-defined wildfire season that would start really around september 1st when it's super hot frying um and then the um, Santa Ana's would, would kick up in September and October, and our fire season would last through October until the first rains in November. Well, now wildfire season starts September 1st and it ends August 31st. Yeah. We've had wildfires in January and February. 
Um, and that was one of the things that got me first interested in climate change. When I first became an activist, I started noticing wildfires in May when the hills are supposed to be lush and alive and blooming with the wild flowers and instead they were blooming with wild fires. <laughs> um, we, um, that was a tip off to me that there was something really wrong. Yeah. Um, and that was many, that was maybe about eight to 10 years ago. Um, then the Woolsey fire happened. And this was, if you remember, we had that big blue wave election and everybody was so happy yeah. that the house and everybody in California stayed up really late watching election results and That's going right. to party. <laughs> um, and so Wednesday we wake up um, late and our sleep schedule is still a little bit screwed up and we stay up late. And Wednesday night, I'm surfing Twitter, looking for more election news. And I start seeing news about a shooting in Thousand Oaks, which is more or less where I live. And there was a mass shooting at a place called the Borderline Grill. That's right. And to be clear, my son was, at the time he was working in Arizona, but he was in the habit of going to the borderline and he was seriously considering driving home immediately after the election and coming home, sleeping for a few hours and then going out on Wednesday night, which was college night. Right. To the and so my son could have been there. And so I spent much of Thursday glued to Twitter looking for news of whether any of my friends' kids were shocked. This is our new reality here. Yeah. So, you know, I'm a climate activist, but gun violence is very real. <laughs> um, so Thursday, I'm basically an emotional wreck. And the, there's a couple of wildfires, wildfires starting up because the Santa Anas have kicked in. And one of them is to my west. And there's another one to the northeast. And I see on Twitter around five o'clock that this may hit my community in Ventura County in about two hours. And I go, May? <gasps> May? Yeah. That was um, a, it was a big fire. I remember seeing it from the hillside over here. And my, my mother was 94 years old. She, she needs a walker to get around. She takes a lot of pills. Um, I didn't want to have to be evacuating her in the middle of the night based on a quick knock on the door. So I go to her and I say, mom, we probably won't need this. This is probably gonna be fine. Do not panic at all, but please pack an overnight bag, yeah. get all your meds together, um, be ready to evacuate. So fire comes and I see on Twitter that it will hit my community in an hour. And at this point I, pack up and I go over to my boyfriend's house. And by the time the emergency alert comes out through Ventura County, I'm settled in at the boyfriend's house. And there are worse things than watching a wildfire ravage your own community while sitting 20 miles away and feeling relatively safe. Yeah. Um, but this wildfire came within 500 feet of my home. My neighbors ran 
um, hoses over the back wall of my, ho my house, which is at the end of the cul-de-sac, to fight it off. Because if it had jumped the creek, and when I say the creek, I mean more like the overgrown brush with a suggestion of water in there in January, yeah. but that time right, of right. year. Um, yeah, so I remained really badly shaken up. Um, and I had an idea as to how prevalent all this was. And so I showed up at the, Demo at the California Democratic Party meeting that we did later on that month, still very much in shell shock. Honestly, I probably had PTSD, um, but I was trying to organize through my own pain. Right. And so I, I asked people to stand up first, if anybody here is from paradise, and of course nobody there is from paradise anymore, because that Woolsey fire was the same day as the paradise fire. I don't That's know right. if you remember that. Yeah. Um, and I asked people to stand up if they've been involved in any of our wildfires, the Woolsey fire, the Thomas fire that was the largest fire ever until the Mendocino Lake complex fire came along, <laughs> the Cedar fire down in San Diego, yep. and a third of the room stands up. And then I asked people simply to stand up if you know somebody who's been directly affected by wildfire. Do you? Yeah, I would. I yeah, my sisters. Yeah. Uh, do you remember that fire that uh, went through Corriganville, like towards? Yes. So she lived right there, right at the edge of it. Um, so I remember she evacuated, and um, about I want to say it was about five thirty six a.m. in the morning. Her house was on TV because the fire had come right up to the edge there. And there was a, a news helicopter showing showing it, right? And I was like, oh, my God, that's my sister's house. So, yeah, yeah. We, we are pretty much all affected by this. And if we don't right. do something about it, I, I, for one, I feel like climate change is an existential threat. I think it's the biggest problem we face. I don't think that's hyperbolic in any way. I just don't. So I think it, you're right. And when I asked this in a room full of 300 Democrats to stand up, if you know somebody who's been directly affected by wildfire, everybody stood up, everybody. Yeah. So yeah. I did this to drive home the point that this is not some far off distant threat. Democrats have a tendency to prioritize whatever is here right now. Um, right. And it's very hard to prioritize climate change when we've got kids locked in, in cages right now. We've got that cruel wall going up on the southern border right now. We've got kids being shot at schools and at the borderline bar right now. But climate change is also a right now event in places like California. And I know that I could repeat that same exercise in New Orleans. Yeah. Or in Iowa about the floods. Right. Um, I know that I could do this. And so circling way back around to your original question, what <laughs> yeah. I'm going to bring to the DNC is that urgency mm -hmm. that this is not some far off distant thing. This has happened to me right here, right now. And this is going to happen to you. And it's just a matter of time. Yeah. And so 
climate change can be sort of abstract and it can be sort of not only just distant, but also how do we fix it? It's got all these technical aspects. And what I'm trying to do is build political power for the climate movement through Climate Hawks Vote. Um, and that starts off with things like trying to get the best pro-climate Democrats elected. We're picky about who we endorse. Um, we, we go into primaries. We're not afraid of going into primaries, um, throwing some sharp elbows in the interest of building up a block of Democrats in Congress who will take climate change much more seriously than the vast majority of them. And so even Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, the best of the climate Democrats um, will talk about it, but I don't think that any of them have fled their homes wondering if their homes would still be standing when they get back. Right. And I have, and I'm gonna bring that to the DNC and I'm gonna make them all listen. And if not, I'm gonna tell them all to fuck off. <laughs> Yes. No, and I love that you're doing this. It, this is what needs to happen. Um, you you mentioned that you're not afraid to go into primaries and endorse candidates. I'm saying bravo to that because there's too many organizations that absolutely are. I'm thinking specifically about the Sierra Club. I'm thinking about some of these other environmental groups where they generally only pick what they perceive to be the safe candidates. And oftentimes the safe candidates aren't the most environmentally friendly candidates. There's usually somebody else running in the primary that's to, that's to the left of them that isn't um, sort of towing the line with fossil fuel companies, et cetera. So I'm glad that you're doing that. Somebody needs to do that. Somebody needs to hold, needs to hold the line there because it's not happening now with the current, uh, current state of affairs. So on that note, who are some of the candidates that you folks are supporting in this election cycle? So obviously everybody's top priority is, is gonna be flipping the Senate. Mm -hmm. um, and there's an interesting thing going on where the DSCC, that's the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, yeah. um, the money, the people with money. The, the money people that, um, yeah, yeah, fund campaigns. And Chuck Schumer is the nominal head of it. Yeah. And they've gone and been very aggressive about early endorsements. Yeah. And the, the Venn diagram of the candidates that they've endorsed and the most progressive climate candidate, there's no overlap at all between Yeah, it's two. like this. <laughs> here's the most progressive, here's who they endorse. Well, and in fact, they've gone and actually blacklisted any consultants from working with progressive yes. challengers in races where they have an incumbent. I'm thinking specifically of races like Nancy Pelosi versus Shahid Buttar. So right. any that's that's harming Shahid's race because he can't he can't have any of those folks work for him. If they choose to work for him, then they're they're now on the DCCC blacklist. This is crazy to me that he's doing this. Right. Um so in the in Colorado, we're backing um Andrew Romanoff. Okay. And he is the progressive running explicitly on a green new deal and Medicare for all. And the DSCC is backing John Hickenlooper, who is famous. Frackenlooper, mostly, that's what I call him. Right. I was going to say he's mostly famous for being known as Frackenlooper. Yeah. And he's horrible. He's horrible. He is. Right. He's the poster child for a corrupt uh, politician that engages in all kinds of quid pro quo with corporate money. Uh, Frackenlooper is a well-deserved name for him. I mean, he supports right. fracking carte blanche. Right. 
Now, we've also endorsed um, Mark Kelly in Arizona, who is a decent guy. I don't think he's going to be terrific on climate. I think he's going to be decent on climate. Okay. And most importantly, I think he's going to win. <laughs> um, he's, got no, he's got no primary opponent, so that one was an easy choice. Ah. Um, in Massachusetts, have you followed the Massachusetts Senate race? race not, at all? not tightly. So Ed Markey is super progressive. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And he's yes. being challenged by Kennedy, the neoliberal. Right. And Joe Kennedy is somebody named Kennedy who wants to be president. And I don't know that he stands for anything else. Uh, he stands for banksters. He stands for just about everything that you and I don't. Um, that, you know what, it, I do, I will say this. I need to pay more attention to that race. I have noticed that uh, Kennedy's tweets are a little bit disturbing to me because they are definitely, the, you read his, some of the stuff he's saying, it's definitely pro-corporate power. And it's like, we here we are trying to get progressive challengers in races where we have these establishment quid pro quo candidates that exist that are bot congressmen. And um, the, the other thing you need to know about Ed Markey is that he literally wrote the Green New Deal resolution with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And so if we lose the co-author of the Green New Deal, problem. What's, what symbol does that send? That tells people that Massachusetts voters don't care about climate. And so I'm worried about that one. This is yeah. one where all of the green groups, the Sierra Club and the League of Conservation Voters and the conservative green groups, we're all on the same page here. And we okay. all know that we need to defend Ed Markey. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, I, I you know, I just don't. So do you think this was by design? Is this, is this the DNC sticking his thumb on the scale for a certain reason? I don't think so. In this case, um, in this case, I think that Kennedy is acting alone. Okay. And he's just acting out of sheer ambition. He's just seeing- okay, that's fair. Just seizing an opportunity. And it would have been so much smarter to just push for Elizabeth Warren to be president or Warren to become vice president or Warren to take a cabinet spot or otherwise get Warren out of the Senate and then run in her spot which would have made sense but this is okay. not good no it's not good it's not good it's uh right. i think it's something we need to keep an eye on absolutely right so those are some of the candidates that we're backing um you know mark kelly is an easy choice we're going to be going into the um iowa race but honestly the virus hit just as we were thinking about doing an endorsement and okay. now I think we're going to wait till after the primary is June 9th. We're going to, we're not going to be able to make a significant difference. And so we're going to just, we're just going to endorse the winner of the primary okay. against the Republican. One thing about climate hawks vote, when we're considering an endorsement in a primary race, we listen to our grassroots people in the district. Good. So with Kennedy versus Markey, we asked Massachusetts climate hawks. And they told us 90% of them preferred um, Markey to Kennedy. So wow. Kennedy has yeah. some appeal in Massachusetts, but not among the climate people. <laughs> yeah. And same thing in Colorado. At, that, at the time that we did the survey, there were a lot of other candidates also in the race, some of which were very good candidates and some of which were very good women. 
I feel sort of weird that it came down to two white men. Yeah. Um, Here we are again. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, but um, people favored um, Romanoff over Hickenlooper two to one. Oh, wow. So, okay. Yeah. So again, Hickenlooper has fans, but they're not within the climate world. No, definitely not. I, you know, so I would say a good chunk of the Democratic base at this point sees that climate change is, is an existential threat, regardless of Tom Perez and the fossil fuel money and the DNC shenanigans. I think the actual voting base sees it for what it is. And they do want they do want the debate to happen. And in fact, when he decided not to do that, he was kind of thumbing his nose at most of his voters. And I think I think they want to know where candidates stand on this issue, even though, and it's not like we can't care about multiple issues. That's what I don't understand about the arguments that he made about gun violence, you know, racial justice, criminal justice reform. We can care about all of these things at the same time. And I think, um, and honestly, this idea that, well, then we'd have to have debate about these things. Well, sure, why not? Why shouldn't we get to know our candidates in a more intimate way? I mean, policy is what should matter the most. And I feel sure. like that's not getting prefaced right now. So do you guys do any sort of policy initiatives at Climate Hawks or no? We don't, we're not really set up as a policy shop. Okay. Um, so I will, I work in coalitions. Um, okay. I'm very proud of the work that we've done on the no fossil fuel money pledge. In fact, you can see, you, you can't see it from this distance, but what's in the background um, is a board with the no the words of the no fossil fuel okay. money pledge on it and what i do is i bring that board to the california democratic party and anybody who wants to speak to the environmental caucus has to sign that in full view of everybody nice so amy klobuchar signed that board bernie sanders um kamala harris cory booker all of them signed that board that is sitting right there in the corner <laughs> joe biden i bet did not because he wasn't there Right. <laughs> Neither was Elizabeth Warren. Right. That's um, right. Elizabeth Warren didn't come to that either. I was really surprised yeah. by that. Yeah, she snubbed us a bit. She snubbed us. She did. I was a little annoyed about that. But... Oh, I was absolutely annoyed. I don't yeah. look, if you're running for president, you need to talk to the delegates, especially in one of the largest states out there. Yeah. If California. you want the nomination. That's just my opinion. Um, let me ask you this, Ariel. If, if folks want to join your organization or if they want to donate money to your organization, where do they do that at? ClimateHawksVote.com. And what's your so, Twitter also? Um, yeah, on, on Twitter, I had to drop the plural, the hawks. So it's ClimateHawkVote. It's very bad grammar. Yeah. <laughs> um, and on Twitter, I am, under, I am RL underscore Miller. Um, because somebody else had already grabbed R.L. Miller before I got on Twitter. Um, and they had like 13 followers. Of course. <laughs> but I'm, I'm R.L. Miller on Twitter. Um, and I tweet way too much. Um, and on weekends, I tend to tweet pictures of my dog running um, on the trails with me yeah. or tweet pictures of my um, vegetable garden, which I call the Greens New Deal farm. Get it, Greens New Deal great <laughs> awesome you, so about life right now during the coronavirus is yeah. i feel that we have returned to the 19th century yeah, with the in many ways yeah so we're all baking bread i've tried making a homemade pasta 
I'm growing a victory garden, <laughs> co-victory garden, I should call it. Nice. Yeah, no, I actually tried making sourdough bread this last week. So, I mean, you can't find all these things in the store. And all of that, I don't really feel comfortable always going to the store. So, yeah, this is true. Exactly. But on that note, don't you in a weird way also think that maybe the virus has sort of laid bare the problems that we face in this country, whether it's uh, not having Medicare for all, whether it's our, our economy is so fragile that just not having consumption is enough to destroy it, whether it's the fact that people aren't driving their cars and we've had a decrease in pollution. So maybe there's a bright side to that uh, and the pandemic will kind of sort of point us in a better direction, I hope. And what we need to do and what I am advocating for doing is rebuilding better and rebuilding smarter. Yeah. Um, this has given us a pause um, and the pause has been ruinous in many ways, but it has also lowered our emissions for a very short period of time. We are not, um, Nobody is proposing that in order to flatten the climate curve, we stay home for the next 800 years. No. <laughs> right. But what we can do is just be a lot smarter about the way that we re-engage. Um, a lot of meetings seem sort of pointless, right? All that driving through Los Angeles yeah. that I am doing to get to this Democratic meeting and that Democratic meeting. I'm now going to be looking to see which Democratic meetings can be done by Zoom. Exactly. Exactly. Right. I think it's I think it's really opened my eyes to things like that, too. So there are ways. And in fact, now they're doing a lot of the press conferences on Zoom. So I get press releases from various uh, organizations and candidates, and it's all being done on Zoom. And I think that might that might be a way to go. And it's really easy for us to just, you know, tape it right from the Zoom conference. So it's, it's almost like you're still there with your camera, but you're just doing it over the internet, right? So I think it will modify change, necessary change, because obviously if we don't do anything and we maintain the status quo, we're looking at like massive disasters in, you know, 10 years max, in my opinion. Yeah. The fires will burn throughout Los Angeles. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Well, thanks for coming on the show, RL. I enjoyed speaking with you. Um, so folks that are listening to this, please support Climate Hawks Boat. Uh, they're doing great work out there. Support RL in her DNC position because she's fighting the good fight and we need reform within the DNC. Honestly, if we do not reform the DNC and some of these practices that are going on, we can't do any of the other things that we need to do because they are the governing par body, and whatever they decide to do, whatever Tom Perez decides to do, that's how it is. It's really that simple. So support RL. Thank you.